Well, welcome to the podcast. My name is Father Bill W. I'm an Episcopal priest. I live here in Austin, Texas, and I've had the gift of recovery since December the 27th of 1972. Uh, very grateful for that. And um, I'm interested in the kind of the history of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, the psychology and the spirituality uh, that underlie the program. And that's really what these uh, podcasts are about. It's an attempt to go a little bit deeper into um, the recovery world, let's let's say. Uh, and we approach it uh, in a number of uh, different ways. If you haven't done so, I would really encourage you to go to the um, website uh, that we have. It's called Two Way Prayer, TWO. And we have a new video that's up there. It explains the history of uh, the 11th step as they used to do it in the very early days of the program where they were listening to God, listening and writing uh, the thoughts that came into their minds. I think you'll find it interesting and uh, and helpful. I want to also just thank our donors. Uh, we couldn't do this thing without uh, help from a lot of people. So donations are, are really appreciated. It just helps us carry the message out to more and more people. We're starting a new series uh, right now, and it is titled The Power of Now. And if that uh, title sounds somewhat familiar, it's probably because you've heard of the book by Eckhart Tolle. Uh, and it's um, that title, uh, The Power of Now, sold more than two million uh, copies. And it's helped a, a great many addicts and non-addicts find their way to what the big book calls the great reality within and leading us on this uh, new adventure is my friend dr bruce from uh, los angeles california and uh let me give you a little background on uh, dr bruce here if i can find it yeah uh he's a clinical Thank you, father Bill. i just uh really honored to be here i've listened to all your been enriched and blessed by each and every one. I hope I can add something of value. Well, yeah, I, I know I know you will. Um, perhaps you could begin by um, telling us a little bit of your own background, your recovery story, uh, and uh, early life education, that kind of thing. And um, what was it that attracted you to Eckhart Tolle? Thank you for asking. Um, yeah, so my story, you know, Eckerd would be very uh, cautious about telling stories because a lot of them are just a, a, in part kind of a fictional narrative. But the sense I make from uh, analyzing my upbringing was that I grew up in a uh, dysfunctional environment. Uh, my father was very angry and um, abusive. There was a lot of drama and tension and fighting in the household. And my parents, God love them, they got married when they were 17. They had me when I was 19. So uh, they did the best they could. But mm -hmm. the sense of threat in the, in, at home uh, had a profound effect on me because I never felt safe. Um, and, uh, and, and that was kind of my, my main. And it was really uh, reassuring for me to hear how universal the story was. I had a sense that this was you know, just my personal uh, weirdness <laughs> and to hear other people. <laughs> well, and, and <laughs> it's the stuff people. that people don't talk about. You know, we cover it up. 
Yeah. We're, we're taught the family yeah, so secrets. You the, don't talk about that stuff in public. Yeah. So I remember vividly in the first room, I went, wow, people are actually talking about this stuff and it's my story. And it was such a relief. That alone was probably the biggest blessing of going into those rooms, feeling right. uh, that I was connected with everyone else. So um, did a lot of work in ACA. That was my primary and basically my recovery work. And it always was uh, quizzical to me that not, a lot of people would be in 12-step fellowships uh, in the substance abuse programs and not do ACA work. And uh, I thought that was kind of a loss because when you get into that early childhood conditioning, you really get into the, the origins of uh, the defects and the challenges that we have. So that was, uh, and so that from that day forward, I fell in love with 12-step spirituality mm -hmm. because I saw it had in there, it had all the, had all the, right basis about how you transform yourself into becoming, uh, you know, what God intended us to be. And how did you stumble onto Eckhart? Well, one of the things that I inherited from my childhood was an insatiable need to know. Because I grew up in a chaotic environment, I thought that figuring things out would be my salvation. That's a good uh, plan. That sounds like a very yeah, good plan, Bruce. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So that became, uh, you know, what Sartre would call my fundamental project to know what the hell's going on. I remember even in grammar school at 11, the, the teacher said, pick a short story that best, you know, that you can relate to and kind of describe you. And I picked a story called, uh, written by Sherwood Anderson called I Want to Know Why. And it tells the story of a young boy who lives uh, on a farm in a very innocent uh, environment. And then his life changes and he has to go into the city. And um, there he sees all the evils of mankind, a lot of cruelty and uh, just the human dysfunction up close. And this little boy trying to make sense of it. And the short story ends with him saying, I want to know why, and that is me. <laughs> so I wanted to make sense of that cruelty, the lovelessness, and I just really figured at a really young age, I have to find out why. So that became a lifelong study of uh, psychology, spirituality, metaphysics, meditation, wanting to know why. Um, so that's been the story of my life collecting signposts, studying systems to figure out why. Why is the human condition what it is? Why are we so cruel to each other? Mm. Why are we unhappy? And so when I found the power of now, uh, it was transformative because I didn't read it. What I did is I got the audio CD of it and he has a wonderful speaking voice and he speaks from presence. And I find that his voice almost hypnotic. So what I did for hours and hours and hours, I would just take long, beautiful drives, listening uh, to the power of now and a new earth over and over again. And what I found through listening to that was a transformation of my own consciousness. Things started to look more beautiful. The world didn't seem as threatening. I began to relax. And so that really was a, uh, an indication that there was something really here for me. And uh, so, you know, I took very seriously his teachings and I tried to, uh, he's a teacher of practices. 
you know, he has a, he teaches about the human condition. He talks about what obscures us and separates us from our higher power. But he also gives very practical guidance on how to practice so that we can free ourselves from the suffering and misery and kaka. Let's get into uh, Tall's story itself. He, uh, I had hoped to, to get into, you know, the introduction and chapter one of his book, but I found the introduction was so f- full of rich material. Uh, I think we're just going to stay there uh, for this episode. And uh, he says some some really fascinating things. And uh, perhaps you could tell us his story, what happened to him uh, that set the book in motion, that turned his life around. Because it sounds in many ways, although the circumstances are different, it sounds like he hit a bottom of some sort. And that opened up, it's like he fell through the hole and discovered a new world. So what was going on with him? That's right. Um, He uh, was, his family environment was a lot like mine. There was a lot of chaos, uh, father explosive temper, and he was very intellectual. And he said that he really believed kind of like me, that the intellect could solve the problems uh, of everything. And, uh, but it wasn't working. He was working in academia and he had bouts of suicidal depression, uh, underlying currents of fear, almost on a habitual basis. And I think in the introduction, he really tells his story in a beautiful way in terms of what it was like, what happened and what it's like now. Mm-hmm. And so what it was like, he's in a dysfunctional environment, it depends upon thinking as a way of coping with that threatening environment. And it doesn't work. He becomes very suicidal, chronically unhappy, and the bouts of suicidal depression reach a fever pitch at the age of 29, and the urge to annihilate himself grew very intense. And then he had the realization that, and this was really big for him. And when I first read it, I thought, eh, I don't get it. Maybe, you know, how could that realization be so profound? But I finally get it. Basically, he said, in his depression, he says, well, wait a minute, Uh, there's me and this self that I can't live with. So he said, only maybe one of them is real, the self that I can't live with, and the person who's aware of there's a self I can't live with. And he said that realization, um, and I'll read it from the book, because that was the, that thought that there's my suffering self and a the me that who can be aware of the suffering self, that they're separate. And then Mm. the thought that only one of them is real is what catapulted him to spiritual experience. And I want to read this because this description, I think all of his teachings are so basically after being suicidal, he recognizes there's me suffering, there's me who's aware of the suffering, maybe one of them is real. And then he said, um, I was so stunned by this strange realization that my mind stopped. Very important in his teaching, the mind stopping. I was fully conscious, but there were no more thoughts. That's the essence of his teaching. Thoughtless awareness is the portal into connecting with the presence of the divine. And for someone very identified with his thinking and believing that thinking was his, his, his salvation, to finally realize that 
no thoughts is, is, is the avenue to something greater. But anyway, he said, then I felt drawn into what seemed like a vortex of energy. It was a slow movement at first and then accelerated. I was gripped by intense fear and my body started to shake. I heard the words resist nothing as if spoken inside my chest. This is very, very important in his teaching. He talked a lot about the emotional pain body. And he talked about the way to liberate ourselves from our, 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 our suffering, our identification with suffering, is to feel intensely that energy in the body. And so here he is, before he has his great spiritual uh, awakening, feeling the intense fear and loathing. And here's the thought, resist nothing. And this is one of his core teachings. Resist nothing in the present moment. Resist, don't resist the feeling. Don't resist anything that's appearing in your consciousness. Don't resist it. So he heard that resist nothing. I could feel myself being sucked into a void. Very important. For Eckhart Tolle, being in the void, being in the cloud of unknowing is your access and your connection with the higher power. It's in that void where there's no thoughts. Uh, I could feel myself sucked into a void as if the void was in myself rather than outside. Suddenly, there's no more fear. And I let myself fall into that void. I have no recollection of what happened next. So here, the, the, the central teaching based on his own experience is uh, the mind stopping. Feeling the intense emotion that's probably been totally repressed as fear, self-loathing, whatever. Feeling it, not resisting it. The mind stopping, having the experience of the world that is stripped of conceptual uh, interpretation or evaluation. And he falls into that nothingness, that wordless reality. And then he wakes up. And he has this beautiful spiritual awakening. I was awakened by the chirping of a bird outside the window. I had never heard such a sound before. My eyes were still closed and I saw the image of a precious diamond. Yes, if a diamond could make a sound, that is what it would be like. Recognize the room. Everything was fresh and pristine as if it had just come into existence. I picked up things, a pencil, an empty bottle, marveling at the beauty and aliveness of it all. That day, I walked around the city in utter amazement at the miracle of life on earth, as if I had just been born into the world. For the next five months, I lived in a state of uninterrupted peace and bliss. After that, it diminished somewhat in intensity. So, the reason why I wanted to, 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 to go into this a little bit more, because what I think so useful about him and why he's so effective as a teacher is because he's an experiential teacher. He's taught, he speaks and teaches from experience. Mm -hmm. And this, 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 what it was like, suicidal under deep unhappiness, feeling under threat, uh, not wanting to live, you know, uh, experience where, where he, he kind of went into the unconscious and everything says, don't go there, you know, hang on to this, uh, 
this realm of unreality that you're clinging to. (laughs) uh, But if you drop in, and that was was the exact language that Jung dropped in. Uh, Wilson dropped uh, God if there is a God. It was ego collapse, you know? opens you up to a new reality. And as I love Rohr's, Richard Rohr's expression, you know, uh, two things powerful enough to change a man, pain and prayer. Uh, most people choose pain. <laughs> That's how, how we get there. And we don't recognize that it, it oh God, the, the, the role that it's playing in my life. You know, you, 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 you had a lot of pain growing up. I had a lot of pain growing up. Uh, and like yourself, my pain was not so much from my alcoholism. That was the, uh, the attempt to cure my pain. The pain was the childhood stuff that I didn't want to look at and wasn't, wasn't going to look at. There's a paragraph in the introduction that really struck me, and I'd like to read it and then uh, have you walk us through it line by line, Okay. And I'll, I'll, um, I'll read the whole thing and then I'll uh, introduce each line and we can kind of try to break it down. So I think there's a lot of good stuff here. Uh, Tall writes, I knew, of course, that something profoundly significant had happened to me, speaking about his experience, but I didn't understand it all. It wasn't until several, several years later, after I had read spiritual texts and spent time with spiritual teachers, that I realized that what everybody was looking for had already happened to me. I understood that the intense pressure of suffering that night must have forced my consciousness to withdraw from its identification with the unhappy and deeply fearful self, which is ultimately a fiction of the mind. This withdrawal must have been so complete that this false suffering self immediately collapsed, just as if a plug had been pulled out of an inflatable toy. What was left then was my true nature as the ever-present I am, consciousness in its pure state prior to identification with form. And this paragraph to me is an explanation of bottom for alcoholics and addicts and anybody who really undergoes deep spiritual transformation. Uh, so that's why I think it's, it's, it's helpful that the ingredients are there, but they're not well understood perhaps in the beginning. So walk us through it line by line. Let's start with the first one. I knew of course that something profoundly significant had happened to me but I didn't understand it at all. We don't realize the gift that a bottom brings, the gift that pain brings us. Yeah, uh, what strikes me is, uh, but I didn't understand it all. In his teaching, understanding, conceptual understanding is um, not where it's at. You can't grasp God, you can't connect with God, you can't connect with the great reality through the understanding faculty. So it's not surprising that he didn't understand it all. Um, His bottom is right there with this, uh, the, you know, the statement that uh, 
this unhappy and deeply fearful self. So that bottom, that's the bottom. When the intensification of suffering gets so intense, you either cave under it and just try to flee from it, mm -hmm. or in this case, it becomes a springboard to, to uh, the liberation. Yeah, the other thing is uh, he wasn't someone who was studying a lot of spirituality before this experience. Um, afterwards, it's my opinion that the spiritual teaching that most clarified his experience was the Course in Miracles. After uh, that experience, he studied the Course in Miracles, and when he finished the transcript of Power of Now, the first person he sent it to was Marianne Williamson, who wrote uh, a couple of really good books on the Course in Miracles. So, uh, yeah, so it was wonderful afterward that he had this, this, this understanding uh, that all these spiritual teachings and traditions were pointing to what he experienced. Um, bottom, you know, like they said, you know, I think it was a Richard War, someone said, you know, we're either, or no, it was Eckhart said, uh, we can be dragged kicking and screaming into the kingdom of heaven, or yeah. we can just choose to go wisely. <laughs> and uh, so I think, uh, you know, with the intensification of the suffering to the point of wanting annihilation, that's at the bottom. And uh, so fortunately, his mind stopped and that the other thing too is this the, when he says that this withdrawal must have been so complete that this false suffering self immediately collapsed this was very difficult for me to appreciate in the beginning because i consider myself a phenomenologist which means that we describe experience without trying to analyze that much so I'm very loath to say something is false. If we're experiencing something, well, how could that be false? It's experience. But what he means by that as a false self is that our pain and suffering is largely created by the thoughts, evaluations, interpretations of the events of our life. And that's what's false and arbitrary. He said, and I really find this very useful to, to work with my suffering. He says, it's never the situation that causes us to suffer. It's our thoughts about the situation. Mm -hmm. So I think when he says false self, it's this conceptual overlay that we put into our experience and relationship pains, for instance, that intensify the suffering and isn't them false. It takes time. Uh, you, you mentioned that uh, he, he was drawn to the Course in Miracles. Uh, I, I studied that as well in the, I think it was the late 70s uh, when, it, when it first uh, came out. Um, and, and it was very helpful. It was very helpful material uh, for me to kind of get me going. I was already in recovery, but, but I was searching for the more. You know, uh, as any yeah. good addict is, <laughs> and uh, the big book and such was, was really helpful, but it, it wasn't everything. I, I, I needed I needed to go deeper than that. You know, Wilson said it's a spiritual kindergarten, and and he wanted to go deeper, and uh, read a lot. So finding spiritual teachers and books, 
So, yeah, he says, it wasn't until several years later, after I had read spiritual texts and spent time with spiritual teachers, that I realized that what everybody was looking for had already happened to me. If I will really look at my own story, if I'm looking in my search for God, God is not going to be out there. God is going to be found within and, and, and it can only be experienced by me in my way, in my life. You know, I, I, used, to, I used to say, um, I was going to the bars and, and we, would, we would look, what is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of life? And then somebody said to me, well, you're never going to find the meaning of life, but you can find the meaning of your life. Mm. So it's like, well, this is my laboratory. My laboratory is my life. Don't be so quick to dismiss it. Don't think if I read enough books, I'm going to find it out there. Uh, you know, it, it's you know, like you say, God, is, as we understand God, is, is a real trap. Uh, because yeah. intellectuals are going to think, well, I'm going to understand God. Well, there's an ego trip waiting to happen, you know. God is we don't understand God, but can experience God. Absolutely. Yeah. Here's another line. Uh, I understood that the intense pressure of suffering that night must have forced my consciousness to withdraw from its identification with the unhappy and deeply fearful self, which is ultimately a fiction of the mind. There's a letting go that happens in this bottom experience that opens me up to where the unconscious, I'm going to say, is able to break through. Jung would say the self, the greater self, the greater personality is now able to reach me. And it only comes through experience. You know, I, I was really taken when Wilson said that he was sad that we had changed spiritual awakening in step 12. Uh, or changed experience to awakening, that no experience is what he wanted to really say. Because you can't doubt the experience. Once you've had it yourself, that's what you're going to draw on. You know, awakening, fluffy, fluffy, it can go on forever. <laughs> but experience is the real thing. And he had an experience. When you have one of these... Uh obvious spiritual experiences like this where is this the collapse of the ego and and you kind of experience that transcendental reality up close um that's a wonderful thing but you know even Eckert says that you know it doesn't last he says that um that exquisiteness of that experiential reality lessened in intensity over time, although a steady background of peace accompanies him still. So I get very uneasy about people believing they're in a permanent state, that, can, that people can have a spiritual experience and be immune from the human condition, right. not still undergo temptations and vacillations. I don't right. think that's true. I don't either. Ken Wilber 
Ken Wilburn a recent interview I gave last week, someone asked him that, you know, people who are awakened or enlightenment, yeah, are you, do they stay that way? Or, and he just said, quite frankly, uh, no. <laughs> and, um, but Eckert is unusual. And what I really think about Eckert that really, I think people who really are able to maintain that connection with the divine, the higher power, the peace that comes with that, these people practice, they have the experience and then they practice. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh, who visited LMU and I got to be, I had the, the privilege of actually sitting him and his little children monks at his side. And I asked him, I says, you know, your the emanation of your peace and sweetness is just so palpable. That, you know, how do you do it, man? How do you do it? And he just said in that sweet little voice, it's my practice. It's my practice, it's my practice. He practices holding on to the breath. He practices not identifying with thoughts. It's practice, practice, practice. I love the way he speaks. Um, so it's not a one and done. You don't have to do continue right. with the right effort, you know? And uh, so uh, as much as I long for a great liberating, uh, psychedelic almost experience of liberation, I know that more importantly, it's always the now, it's this moment where the obligation to uh, free myself from the thinking is yeah. the opportunity. It's and which, which self is operational at that moment? See, one of the beauties I think of two-way prayer is it puts me in contact in conscious contact like the step says with the true self and then that self is able to speak words of great peace and then as soon as it's over you know okay ego take over again you know mm -hmm. and you need an ego to operate in the world but but if you over identify with the ego that leads to egotism, and that leads to suffering and, and, and the problems. Yeah. Um, so this, this contact with this other, um, he, he, he says, this withdrawal must have been so complete that this false suffering self immediately collapsed, just as if a plug had been pulled out of an inflatable toy. And, and Jung says, that every encounter, I found this helpful, every encounter that the ego has with the, the self, the greater personality, is always experienced as a defeat by the ego. It's put in its right place, which is not down. It's, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a, a put down. It's, it's an embrace of my humanity rather than striving after godlike uh, characteristics that I want, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, right-sized, right-sized. He talks frequently about the gravitational pull of the ego. And mm. because of our conditioning, that we want to be drawn, we are drawn and sucked into thinking. Now, the essence of his teaching is enlightenment or contact with higher power is simply 
thoughtless awareness, awareness without thought, awareness without thought. That's the opposite of the ego. So his use, I think part of his appeal too, or his genius, is that he created a lexicon all for himself. When he uses the word ego, when he uses the word unconsciousness, when he uses the word awakening, they, he even says in the book, you know, uh, you know, don't confuse these with other teachings to use these two. So for ego, for him, is identification with your thoughts and feelings moment to moment. If you're in an ego state, there's no inner observer. There's no part of you that's watching what's going on inside you not aware of the thoughts coming up now, not aware of the feelings coming up now, not aware of the Iraq reactions com uh, coming up now. If you don't have that witnessing presence in the moment, uh, you're gonna be in a state of ego identification and therefore separated from your higher power. So what's this mean in terms of practice? <laughs> And fear comes with that, does it not? Yeah. He says his definition of the ego, and I really relate to this, and um, it's not too hard to understand, but he says the core of an ego is a sense of always being under threat. The ego just is a, a, a part of the human experience that always feel under threat. And that's why when enlightenment and awakening occurs. So many of these people who have transcended this fear talk about seeing the world as all is well. Nothing is threatening. There's this, this beautiful rightness that isn't scary at all. And that is a wonderful experience. And I think that's what uh, practicing his teachings leads to. Uh, Eckhart Tolle helps me a lot, you know, with the, 12, the 10th step but constantly taking uh, personal inventory. That's his practice. Practicing the power of now is always keeping some attention within, uh, asking yourself, am I, am I at ease? Am I living in anticipation of something? Am I living in, in memory of something? Uh, am I complaining about what is it's this, this, and it's very much with one of my favorite teachers, Maurice Nicole, who talks about the necessity of self-observation and self-remembering uh, to elevate ourselves to those higher centers of being. So uh, his work is really about the living uh, practice of keeping some attention of what's going on mentally, emotionally, in terms of reactions. Now, 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 now. You observe it, and then you don't believe it, and you just realize if thoughts are appearing, they're just thoughts. I love his notes, and, you know, you observe your thoughts, you don't have to believe them, you know. So this, this, you know, in the cloud of the knowing, when I reread it recently, I totally forgot that they talk about the cloud of forgetting. Mm -hmm. And uh, so this is one of his practices. You forget this, 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 this narrative that we're telling each other all the time, because it's usually a narrative that's pretty depressing or violent. Which is one of the things that um, if my steady diet is in 
you know, going to meetings and rehashing the the pain. I don't know how helpful that is. Um, I mean, a little bit of it is is good. I'm all for that. I don't want to ever forget the pain, uh, but open me up to the power of the present. You know. Uh, and, and, and that that has to happen, you know. Um, he says, um, uh, you mentioned this, that he was on a spiritual high for several months, says he was reborn. Uh, same words uh, that Wilson chose in the big book, same words that John <laughs> chose in his gospel, you know. This is a, this is a new level of consciousness. You know, that we're all searching for. And it's more, it's closer to us than we think. You know? Yeah. But again, the key is, and it took me years, I've studied and practiced this stuff, and it's amazing how you can keep getting more and more out of it. But this conscious contact is always available now. And the way we do it is by dropping thinking. You have to drop thinking. Enlightenment is thoughtless awareness. And for me, whose whole salvation was trying to think my way out of pain, that was quite a jolting realization. But as I practice, I see that's true. I've had two very painful traumas in my life in the last couple of weeks. And um, what I do, I practice the power of now. I go, okay, here's these thoughts about these situations. I don't identify with them. I just allow them to be. I feel the in, the uh, you know the the impact of that in my body, and um, focus my attention what's happening now without thought. And um, that that is uh, uh, that is contact with the higher power, the freedom and liberation from thought because. There's a link, I've studied a lot of neuroscience, and there's a real link between thought and emotion. And that's why his teaching so uh, emphasizes uh, transcending thought or just looking at thought as thought and not being identified with it. And so when we tell stories in the meetings, um, it's helpful to know what it was like, what happened and how, how you changed. That's really good. But he really warns against having a conceptual sense of identity. So again, there's a real hostility in his teaching against word, wordless, concept, wordful, conceptual reality and identifying with it. Why? Because when we're thinking, we're not feeling the embrace of what he calls the radiant joy of being. When thinking is, I believe thinking, if it's you're thinking, you know, uh, with the four absolutes, that's good thinking, unselfish, loving, pure. Um, that type of those thoughts are beneficial, I believe. But the majority. It's the right, of, it's the right use of the ego mind. Yeah, because it's yeah. delighting and good and truth and, and, and connecting us with uh, everyone. Um, but I love his line early on in one in the book. He says, in our age, thinking has become a dreadful affliction yes. thinking has become a dreadful affliction so what i do is i try to watch when my thinking is uh, become negative complaining fault finding and these are thoughts and they they're linked with fear thoughts and, and shame thoughts but they're just thoughts and we have to slow down 
feel the breath, get still inside. And guess what? A liberation does come. You're no longer in that ick of, uh, you know, the unhappy thoughts about the misery about self and others and all the drama. Um, so it's quite a, uh, it's kind of a real simple teaching, but it's really difficult to do because there's a lot of resistance to stopping and just acknowledging what you're feeling, watching it. He says, I think this is a really good observation. He says, most people who uh, you know, can't do these practices, you don't wanna stop and observe yourself because the first thing you're gonna find when you observe yourself is the pain that you're feeling in some sense. So there's a uh, the, the, the gravitational pull to flee from the suffering that we're experiencing in the present moment is the greatest obstacle to, to, to living in, in, in conscious contact with God. And the other thing he says, which is really true, is uh, uh, God or the higher power or the experience of the design, uh, divine cannot be grasped with the mind. It has to be felt. It has a felt connection with the interconnectedness of things. So we can't, unfortunately, I'm sad to say, my life mission to understand it through thinking <laughs> was uh, uh, didn't work and couldn't work um, because it's only, the other thing he teaches too, this is very important is stillness is, the, is being still, having very few thoughts, hardly no thoughts, no emotions in that stillness and silence, like all the mystical uh, writers say, in stillness, in silence, there is a felt realization of, wow, I'm pretty it, cool. It brings you into the presence, capital P, of that other, capital O. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's the place of peace. Yeah. Uh, um, I, I, when I started studying Jung, um, I think it was in Edward Edinger where he pointed out the story of the of Adam and Eve in the garden where they're hiding under the bushes when God comes around because they are aware of their not just their nakedness I mean they were naked before but they became conscious of it and conscious of what of separation from God that's what they mm. became conscious of. And so they're hiding out of yeah. guilt. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is the dynamic that you were speaking of earlier, Bruce, of, uh, of how the ego operates, that it's fear-based because it has taken on divine proportions. This is the inflation. Yeah. The puffed-upness. You know? And if you find out that I'm false, who? <laughs> Yeah, I'm in real trouble. <laughs> One thing that I've been working on into greater effect, especially in this period of intense suffering for me, is noticing and dropping, okay, there's pain present in my life, and then naturally all these thoughts about it, trying to understand it, memories, this comes in, and it's mental stuff. And if I just drop it, you know, observe it. Okay, these thoughts are brought, and just get back to the practice of the power now. To stay rooted in the now, it, you have to be. They're very simple, common mindfulness practices. Maintain 
an awareness of the breath that severs mm -hmm. the link between motion and feeling here i use hearing a lot if i close my eyes and i just hear thing that stops the thought stuff thought really does exacerbate pain and so practicing the power is freeing yourself through breath awareness through he's really big on feeling the inner body feeling the inner session all experiences without thought you can become aware your aware of your breath without thought you can just listen to the sounds without thought now that's a yeah. means to an end but it's a necessary means and the means is when you do that when you go into thoughtless awareness what appears is the simplicity of the moment the suchness is is and guess what? A lot of that suffering that was mind created and reactive to pain lessened. Yes, so right. I've been astonished at the, I think years ago, if I would experience the traumas that I have in the last couple of weeks, I would just be thrashing around, just totally uh, jerked around by the, 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 the pain of my, my uh, conditioning and uh, the, uh, uh, you know, unable to, to, to function. So I know these practices work. Uh, it's especially helpful for couples because Eckerd writes a lot about relationship, relationship as being your primary practice that's going to lead you to enlightenment because he says deeply conditioned patterns of the ego, especially the shadowy stuff, come out in relationships. So to practice that present, practice the power of now free yourself from your thinking and emotional reactions when you're in a relationship especially an intimate relationship is is uh absolutely necessary and i'm really happy to see how a lot of my couples that i work with have really benefited through these practices uh and uh it, it's a beautiful thing uh, we get caught up into these emotional reactions and relationships and then you're just all ego all shadow right so yeah, I'm glad you focused as, as much as you have on the need for practice, that, that this is not a one-shot deal. This is a lifelong adventure. Uh, it take, I mean, I'm 50 years sober. So what? I can yep. be as crazy as anybody if I, if I, if I think. <laughs> as a solution as a solution uh uh what was his name uh tom powers in uh invitation to the great experiment he, he was a student of wilson's uh wilson was his sponsor and, he, and he's got a line in his book how uh how when a new person comes into the meeting and he's just been kicked in the gut by life and he's just in the corner crying, you know, and, and there's nothing left of him. He said, we should all gather around him because he can be a source of great wisdom. Where, whereas if we, if we try to, um, you know, bring our ego minds to it, uh, we're already contaminated it. So he's, he's big too as you would say, on watchfulness, on mindfulness, uh, the step 10 business. If I don't watch, I won't know what the hell to pray for, you know? And I, I, the other thing I was just co would comment on is 
So many of the people, when I listen to their two-way prayers uh, in their writing, uh, the voice will say to them, breathe, mm. breathe. It's a reminder, you know, put, put this thinking stuff down and be present. Uh, be present. I was really blown away by the wonderful lady at your last guest who was sharing her two-way prayer journal. And she <clears throat> said that, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, her loving parent or whatever, told her, uh, uh, breathe when you get upset, when you can breathe, because that is the, when you do that, you're connected to the umbilical cord that connects you to the divine matrix. That was just so beautiful. And that's what, that's what these practices are. Um, it's always now, there's always, you know, taking, resp taking responsibility for your life is always taking your responsibility for what is going on inside you now, witnessing it to transform it and also acceptance, you know, we'll get out of, get, to it at a later episode, but he has a lot of teachings about finding this kingdom of peace through acceptance, conscious acceptance. Like when he had before he had his spiritual experience, he heard those words resist nothing. Right. And so these are some very simple, powerful practices. And the intellect can just for a while I did I I trivialized them. Ah, you're just watching the breath, you're feeling the inner body, you're right, you know, right, right. Your emotions. There's nothing. So what? But when you actually do these things, you see, you feel the liberation from, uh, uh, you know, our minds are dangerous things. What we, you know, what we think and, and how we interpret and evaluate ourselves and others is just uh, creates a lot of unnecessary suffering. Well, listen, uh, Bruce, um, we, we could go on and on. This, this has been really, really helpful. And um, I think a nice introduction uh, to the work. So um, I thank you for uh, sharing your experience and your wisdom uh, with us. And then in the upcoming series, we'll, we'll kind of go through the book, encourage you to get a copy of the book. There's a, uh, I'm going to put it in the show notes. You can order it um, uh, from Amazon or lots of used copies out there. Um, and there's also PDF copies, so it's, it can be free. Uh, I'll put those uh, also in the show notes. And I will put uh, a link to Dr. Bruce if you'd like to uh, send him uh, a message. Um, he would love to hear from you. So, uh, Dr. Bruce, thank you so much for, for joining us. Um, look forward to the series and uh, want to thank you guys for listening. And I hope it uh, is going to open, open some doors for you. Um, I know when I first went into AA meetings, uh, I was wise enough to look at the on the wall and where I saw that sign that said, think, think, think. I said, <laughs> no, that one's not for me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, uh, again, again, thank you guys. Hope this was helpful and I hope you'll keep coming back. And if it was helpful, uh, Turn on some of your friends to uh, some of these podcasts. Uh, don't, don't keep it to yourself. So God bless and keep coming back. Mm -hmm.